If you have a Bible, please turn to our gospel passage for this morning, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Here we find Jesus fresh from his victories as the divine warrior purging the land of Israel from demons and illness and injustice. And he's marching into the capital. So in literature and in movies, they have this uh, term called in medias res, where you start something right in the middle of action. That's what we've done here. We've picked right in the middle of action. And if you've been reading through Mark's gospel, you have to learn to read in the first 10 chapters that Jesus is a warrior God. He's the divine warrior. And he's fighting evil. He's casting out demons. He's healing sickness. He's rebuking death. He's having all of these skirmishes with the great darkness. And here in chapter 11, suddenly something changes. Jesus has been waging war in the backwaters of Galilee. He's been fighting in the outskirts of Palestine. But in Mark chapter 11, suddenly he pivots He makes his decisive move and enters into the capital city. And he moves to the center of that city, to the temple. And suddenly, in Mark chapter 11, he not only makes this move, but he stops everything and he deliberately choreographs a piece of street theater, a drama. What he does here is he he kind of takes over what's been going on and turns it into something else. He commandeers a donkey. And that's strange because at no other moment has Jesus used anything for transportation but his two feet. I mean, for years he's been walking around Israel. For years, he's been moving all through Palestine and suddenly for the first and only time in the Gospels, Jesus gets on a donkey and that's odd. Verse 2, he tells a couple of his disciples to go into the next village and requisition this animal that they'll find tied up outside somebody's door. It doesn't belong to Jesus. So in verse 3, he tells them, That if anyone says to you, hey, why are you taking this animal that doesn't belong to you? He says, tell those people the Lord has need of it. So they do. They bring this donkey. They bring it back to Jesus. And in verse 7, it says, this other strange thing happens. They laid their cloaks on the donkey. And he mounted it. Several people spread their cloaks out in in the road in front of him. And others did the same with foliage they had cut in the fields. And those in front and those coming behind shouted, Hosanna, welcome in the Lord's name. Welcome to the kingdom of our father David. The kingdom coming right now, Hosanna in the highest. What's going on here is, like I said, Jesus is deliberately, intentionally choreographing theater. You see, the roads were jammed. With these huge crowds of people traveling like Jesus on foot into Jerusalem for Passover. Passover, this festival that sits at the heart 
of the Jewish world. And so for all Israel, from all over Israel, people are making pilgrim, a pilgrimage into the capital city. Imagine the scene yesterday in our nation's capital. Something like 800,000 people. They think it might be the largest single day march in the history of our nation. Spencer, our daughter, was there. All these people marching in D.C. And she said, Dad, the crowds, I've never seen so many people. Can you imagine little Spencer, right, overwhelmed with these huge crowds? She turned a corner, she said, into the mall there, and suddenly she was in almost a million people. That's the kind of thing, but it was a higher density. It was a smaller space, and that kind of thing that happened yesterday in D.C., that's the sort of thing that was going on on this day, except the crowds were more raucous and less organized. And they were all walking because that's the tradition. Here it is. Pilgrims enter Jerusalem by foot. That was the ancient tradition. It had been going on for centuries upon centuries. That's the tradition. Unless you're the king. And then there's a different tradition. You see, there was this other tradition going back Almost a thousand years where the great King Solomon started it all by riding to his coronation on what? A donkey. You see, we think today of donkeys as comical. But at that moment, in that place, at that time, donkeys were the transport of royalty. Odd, isn't it? <laughs> we, we would think of something else. A stretch limousine. They used a little donkey. I don't know. Cultures are different. But it wasn't only Solomon. It was also the warrior king, Jehu. And then 500 years later, the prophet Zechariah, we just heard his prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, tells of the coming king who will deliver Israel from her enemies. We're told... That that king, the great king, will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And none of this was missed on the crowd. You see, because these ancient stories of scripture, these stories and songs and prophecies, the Jewish people love this stuff. They drink it for breakfast. They talked about it over lunch. At night, this is what they binged watched on Netflix. This, is, this was what saturated their hearts and minds. This is what they stayed up too late talking about and doing and listening to instead of going to bed like responsible people so they could go to work the next day. Their hearts and minds were saturated in the dramas and the rhythms of their ancestral story. They knew their way around scripture the way you know your way around your house at night in the dark. They could navigate it blindfolded. And so when Jesus does theater, he's evoking those stories. He's, he's kicking off a script that they knew. And so they join in. They take their cloaks because clothes make the man. Laying down your cloak before a king was a part of the drama. It was a symbol of allegiance, of humility, of humbling yourself and paying homage. You don't spread your clothes on the road. 
especially in dusty, stony, in the dusty and stony Middle East. For you don't do this for just anybody. You don't do it for your friends. You don't even do it for your respected elders in an honor and shame culture. You only do that for royalty. And you don't cut branches off of trees and foliage from the fields to wave in the streets just because you're happy, just because it's a festival. No, this was a set piece. This was an ancient call and response. This was a national script. You do this because you're welcoming the long-promised king. And in verses 9 and 10, they start singing. And what are they singing? They're singing the script. They're singing Psalm 118. They're hailing Jesus as king. Here is the conquering hero, the divine warrior. Read the first 10 chapters of Mark. There is Jesus triumphing in battles and skirmishes over Satan and disease and death. And now in chapter 11, like a warrior who is victorious, he enters the capital city. And like all the kings before him who entered that city victoriously, he goes straight to the temple. He looks all around and then nothing. Crickets. The climax of this royal processional is strangely anticlimactic. Where are the city's leaders? Where are the chief priests, the rulers, the authorities? They've got a part to play. This is now their moment. They're nowhere to be found. Look, look at this way. All right, can you imagine if on Inauguration Day, February the 20th, 2017, President-elect Trump made president, right? Okay, imagine, as custom, he shows up that morning to the White House. Can you imagine... If on that day, Barack Obama was not there. Can you imagine what that would have been like if President Obama and First Lady Michelle, if they were playing golf in Hawaii? And then what if President-elect Trump proceeded to the Capitol and the crowds are there and they're cheering and his supporters are there and the press and the media, but Chief Justice Robertson, Not there. No presidential oath of office. That's what happened. It was that awkward. As much as you know that that's wrong, they knew that something was amiss, that the script was strangely incomplete. This is a snub. A rejection, an act of rebellion. And so the scene closes with the spotlight on one actor. Stage center, King Jesus. And notice what it says in the middle of verse 11. He looked around at everything. Now can you feel the weight of the ominous silence? What's going to happen? Can you imagine all of us watching TV on this day, this inauguration day? What happens next? We'll get to that. But I want us to push pause in this moment. And let's put ourselves into the drama Imagine Jesus standing there. Imagine the silence. Imagine his gaze. In that moment, what does he see 
as he looks at everything. That's what it says, right? Everything. Put yourself there. He looks at everything, including you. Can you imagine this? Can you see in your mind's eye the King Jesus turning his possessive gaze toward you? And as he sees everything about you, what does he see? Are you like the disciples? Does he see one who obeys him even when his commands puzzle you? Are you like the owners of the donkey? Does he see someone who has put even their own property at his disposal? Are you like the crowds? Does he see someone who goes out of their way to honor him? Or are you like the strangely missing leaders of the city? So busy, so much work. Day by day goes by and all of your margin is given to your own aspirations. Too preoccupied. To pay attention shaped by the dangerous combination of your own goals and the powerful pressures of culture. So you slot Jesus in into the nooks and crannies of your life. And when there's nothing else to do, no hobbies demanding your weekend, no vacation scheduled, then you give him a slice of attention. Are you a Christian whose Christian commitment has been domesticated and trivialized? Is your devotion to Jesus really nothing more than a marginal belief that he can help you through the things you're going through and provide you with a cozy spiritual experience when you need it, if you have time? What does Jesus see when he looks at you and he sees everything? Have you found in your own life the equivalent of a cloak to spread on the road before him? Does he see someone Whose heart he's won. See, that's the way we've got to read scripture. We've got to see ourselves in it. We've got to turn our lives toward God and say, What's here for me? What are you saying to me? Let's go on with the story. Verse 12, it's the following day. Jesus returns to the temple. Because that's the scene of the crime. But notice the story of his strange behavior in the temple is wrapped up with this strange business of the fig tree. And the way Mark tells the story, it's like one of those movies where two scenes are spliced into each other and it goes from one to the other and from one to the other. First in verses 12 to 14, we have this fig tree. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fully leafed out fig tree and he goes to it looking for fruit, but he finds none. So he curses the fig tree. And then the next thing we know, he's in the temple and he's disrupting business and overturning tables and chairs and stopping people from walking through. And then it cuts back to the fig tree in verses 20 to 25. And there it is, withered away, root to stem. So the way Mark has told this story It all goes together. You need the fig tree to understand what he does in the temple. And you need to see him acting like this in the temple to figure out what's he, why why is he messing with the fig tree? I mean, if there's ever been an innocent bystander, right? There's this fig tree. He ain't done nothing to nobody. 
Clearly, this is another piece of orchestrated street theater. Because it's not even the season for figs. Did Jesus not know that? I mean, the idea is he made the fig tree. Does the maker of the fig tree know less than the common child running around Palestine? No. He knows what time it is. He knows what season it is. That's what it tells us at the end of verse 13. So what's going on here? We've got to read them together. You've got to let the fig tree point at the temple. It's a symbol. It's a symbol for the temple. Something's gone wrong with the temple. The temple is not doing what it's made to do. Now, what's so bad about the temple that suddenly we get the only destructive miracle Jesus ever performs? Right? All of his miracles, think of them. Wine that kicks off a party, healing people, fixing the lame, um, people can hear again, see again, raising the dead, calming storms. All of them are about renewal and restoration and redemption and rescuing. But here we have the first time occurrence of a miracle of death where Jesus is killing. What, What has gone wrong with the temple That someone who can only bring life suddenly judges, condemns, and executes? Well, the answer is in verse 17. He quotes from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Notice verse, Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a quote. And then another quote. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's the key that unlocks this kind of postmodern fractured narrative. The temple, you see, is God's house. And it was supposed to be a fruitful tree, nourishing Israel and the nations. It's supposed to be a burning bush, radiating the light of God's presence into the world. It's supposed to serve the bread of life. But something has happened. You see what it says right at the end of verse 17? Jesus says that the temple has become, anybody following along in their Bible? What? A den of thieves, a den of robbers, a cave for brigands. Now it helps to know that in Jesus' day, it helps if you can read the language this was originally written in because he uses an odd word there. It's, um, that's why I like the word brigand because that, Didn't that strike your ears kind of, why did he say that? That's not our normal word, right? Robber, thief, that's the normal word. Jesus did the same. He used an an extra, an out of the ordinary word. He he used a word that is not used for thief or robber when you're talking about just average run-of-the-mill, you know, regular kind of robber, regular kind of thief. No, he uses a word that's about a specific criminal. Get ready for this because this is the key. He uses the word for revolutionaries. The ultra-Orthodox who were plotting and ready to use violence to bring about their nationalist dreams. That's the word he uses. The holy warriors. The religious terrorists. 
This is a specific term used to identify the hardline nationalist Jew who was eager to use violence to overthrow the Roman government. Brigand. You've turned my temple into a cave for brigands. The temple was a gift from God to Israel as a symbol of God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world. But instead of organizing the temple as the symbol of God's welcome to the nations, Israel's leaders have organized the temple as a symbol of God's exclusion of the nations. And so, as with the fig tree, all fig leaves, no fruit. The temple is nothing more than fig leaves. And what are fig leaves used to do in the story of the Bible? We ever come across fig leaves in the story? Where? Right at the beginning. And what are fig leaves used for? They are used as a pathetic covering for Israel's shame as they hide from the living God like Adam and Eve. And so it falls under God's judgment. Its very reason for existing is being taken away And sure enough, in a few years, these beautiful fig leaves called the temple, in A.D. 70, the Roman army marched in and destroyed it, raised it to the ground, root to stem, the temple and everything that touched it was destroyed. Once again, let's press pause. Let's reflect on our own lives. What are we to make of this for us today? Well, first of all, we surely need to see that God cares for societies. And that by God's design, societies are shaped by powerful institutions. What institutions and agencies And bodies has God given to our society that are meant to symbolize God's welcome? What institutions in Harrisonburg should be sources of blessing to all? What what agencies are, are put here to feed the poor and care for those in need and secure justice for those who cannot secure it from themselves? What, what groups should be relating to the world the way God relates to this world? Where certainly we should think of the church. Absolutely, right? This institution that God has put all over this world in Harrisonburg to represent and to extend his welcome. And churches must recognize their purpose and their responsibilities. And woe betide the church that merely invokes God to back up their own ambitions and aspirations. And a church must be wary of setting its own agenda in such a way that it becomes merely self-centered and ultimately idolatrous because churches that do that 
The Lord Jesus Christ has done it before and he will do it again. He will curse them and they will wither root to branch. He will declare those houses of God desolate and remove the lampstand. Churches should tremble when they read this. But not only churches, churches aren't the only ones that need to tremble because it's also our courts of law and our legislative bodies and our banks and our city councils and our school boards and our corporate boardrooms. These are places of power that shape society. And when these kinds of places use their power to the benefit of the already powerful and the downtreading of the already powerless, and when people with power and wealth and influence turn in on themselves instead of outwards with generosity towards the world, towards the needs of the world, Jesus wants us to stride right into those places and turn over the tables. That's what we are to do. Now I hope that this is striking close to home. I'm trying. I'm trying my hardest to get up in your business. I hope that all of you, all of us, are feeling uncomfortable right now. As we think about institutions, places in Harrisonburg, Places in the United States. That are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. What do we do in these moments? When these things come into our mind. When we realize this. When we realize that this is a living word. That it is for today as much as it was for then. What do we do in this moment? Well let's see what happens in the story. Notice, notice these disciples. The next thing that happens for them is that Jesus starts talking about mountains. The next morning, verse 20, they passed and they saw the fig tree withered away to the roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And there is Jesus. There is Jesus. Now, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're about 200 feet higher than Jerusalem because they were hanging out on the Mount of Olives. And... Um, and, and they're seeing this other, this mountain. They're seeing this mountain with this temple on it. And Jesus says, what? What, what? what does he say? Have faith in God. I'm telling you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? The temple. That was the great, that was the dominant mountain. That was Massanutten overshadowing everything systemically, everything institutionally, overshadowing their imagination, overshadowing their economy, overshadowing their society. Everything was dominated in Israel by the temple. And Jesus is talking about the temple. He says, look, I'm telling you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, this temple, be off with you, get yourself thrown into the sea, what is the sea in the Bible? It's the Gentiles. Be swallowed up by the Gentiles. 
If they have no doubt in their heart, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. That's why I'm telling you everything that you request in prayer, everything you ask God for. Believe that you receive it and it will happen for you. And when you're standing there praying, if you have something against someone else, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now put yourself in the place of these disciples Scratching their head, trying to figure out where all this is going. He's overturned tables. He's cursed this fig tree. Now he's talking about that mountain. And now just play out the next few years in your mind. As this mountain ravages these disciples. In just a few days, that mountain is going to kill Jesus. And in the weeks and months and years ahead, that mountain is going to hound and chase and kill and attack these disciples. And they're going to look at that mountain. And they're going to feel like that is ultimate reality. Nothing can stop that. That system always wins. Just like you school teachers. Or looking at the system of education. And it is wearing you out. And you get home at the end of the day. And you are so tired you can't even decide what to eat. Just like Winona, working in our jails, trying to labor for justice among a prison population. Just like Aaron Cook, a defense lawyer in our church, dealing with a justice system that seems always ready to grind into the ground the weak and the vulnerable. What mountains is Jesus saying to you? Yeah, they look like Massanutten. They look inalterable. They look indefeatable, but they are not because you, you are supposed to go for those places. That's your job. And when you go for them, and when you turn, turn over tables, when you are facing systems of injustice and unwelcome that feel as immovable as a mountain, when you are facing an economic system that, in which the gap between the rich and the poor is growing at an unprecedented rate, as you follow Jesus in faith and hope and love, and you go to work, this kind of work, while you're doing it, Be sure you pray. That's what he says. When it comes to mountains, turn over tables and pray. Be sure you pray. That's what he's telling his disciples. Prayer, you see, is this treasure that is undiminished. It's a mind that is never exhausted. It's the root, the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. And prayer is a power that exceeds every power. That's what he's telling them. Be careful, though. Don't be confused. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of praying that's cold and feeble and absent of zeal. He's talking about the kind of prayer that proceeds from the mind that is outstretched and the child it is of a contrite spirit. It's the offspring of a soul wholly converted to Jesus. This is the prayer that mounts its way to heaven and moves mountains. And what he's telling us is that this kind of prayer can subdue the strength 
of fire and bridle the rage of lions and silence, anarchy and extinguish wars and appease the elements and expel demons and burst the chains of death and enlarge the gates of heaven and relieve diseases and avert frauds and rescue cities from destruction and stay the sun in its course and arrest the progress of a thunderbolt. Do you see? Jesus is teaching us that prayer has the power to destroy whatever is at enmity with the good. That's what he wants us to know. It's what he wants us to believe. But he's not just talking about prayer from your lips. He's talking about the prayer that ascends from the inmost recesses of your heart. The work we have to do in this good but broken world is vast. How are we going to figure out how kids stop getting shot in schools? It is complicated. It is massive. We should not settle for it. We've got, how are we going to figure this out? We've got hard work to do. And the work we have to do here in Harrisonburg, it's complicated and it's overwhelming. And while we do this work, we must do this work. And pray. We must. We have to pray. But while we do that, while we confidently and boldly pray for God's kingdom to come here in our community, Jesus is quite clear. There can be no personal malice or aggression involved in such work. Even at the very moment when Jesus is denouncing the system that has so deeply corrupted God's intention for Israel, his final word is the stern command to forgive. Perhaps only those who have learned what that means will be in a position to act with Jesus' authority against the injustices and wickednesses of our city. One last thing. Let's go back to that fig tree. Because there's more. Not only does it point to the temple, not only does it point back to the original sin. The only time Jesus does a miracle of destruction is his pronouncing of judgment upon Jerusalem for refusing God's way of peace. And the object of that curse is a tree. And as we continue to walk with Jesus this week, we will see that he runs ahead of the curse. And he climbs on that tree. And he draws down the full weight of the Roman Empire on himself. This is the great dark romance at the center of the universe. That the judgment he said was coming to Israel, he then brought it to himself. And he offers this world the gift of his death on that tree, exhausting the power 
of evil. That's the journey we're about to go on into that dark romantic mystery in the days ahead. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.